The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th, we have begun a new national dialogue about race relations and policing in America. There are many issues we need to address, the first of which is trying to understand the black experience in America in 2020. We haven't seen protests or riots like this in our country since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th, 1968. This is not a black or white issue. This is not a Republican or Democratic issue. This is an issue we need to address for all Americans. And we need to focus on finding solutions that will enable us to move forward with a better life for every American and with opportunities for every American. My guest today is a longtime friend and someone I admire. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Gerard Robinson. He's the Vice President for Education at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation in Charlottesville, Virginia. Robinson previously served as Commissioner of Education for the State of Florida and as Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Gerard, you wrote a superb article on riots and reason in five acts. What's your general feeling uh, about where we are and how you, as an American citizen, but also as an intellectual and an activist, how you respond to all this? First of all, Mr. Speaker, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners about this subject. What I see taking place right now in the United States, started off, of course, in Minneapolis and elsewhere, is just troubling. 
as an American, troubling as an academic, and it's troubling just as a human being. What we see is almost the Thomas Hobbes perspective of war of all against all. That somehow we see someone's skin color and automatically they become the enemy. Or the idea that if we scratch a police, we see a racist, we see a thug, we see a terrorist. And the idea that somehow we can't find a middle ground to show righteous indignation, but at the same time to say, we're gonna get beyond this. And so when I see 2020, I think back to 1992 when I was a fifth grade school teacher in Los Angeles, when the riots took place. But I am also hopeful that we will move beyond this, but it'll take time and frankly, it'll take conversations like this to make it happen. Talk about your childhood and growing up. So I actually grew up in Los Angeles, California. My parents are both Southerners who were part of the post-World War II move from the South to California to find good jobs with good benefits. Grew up in a working class home. Stepdad, who I grew up with, worked as an airplane wing mechanic at Lockheed, 47 years. Honest days paid for honest days work. My mother had odd and end jobs in the fashion industry. I attended Catholic schools in Los Angeles, was a third generation Roman Catholic with roots from Los Angeles. In fact, Catherine Drexel, the first American to find herself as a saint, helped create the parish where a number of my family members went to school in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I grew up playing football, wanted to go to USC, like a lot of guys in LA, and got to high school and then realized after getting hurt that football wasn't going to be an option for me. In the neighborhood I grew up in, in the Crenshaw district, there were three avenues out of the neighborhood, academics, sports, and violence. Well, I wasn't a gangster, although I grew up in a gang neighborhood. I wasn't a punk, so they figured out it wasn't the violence route. I was not a great student at all. Finished high school without having algebra, combined SAT score of a 620. So it surely was going to be academics. Football for me was a pathway. And unfortunately, I got hurt my senior year and had to reinvent myself. But that led to me going to a community college, working as a box boy at a grocery store for three years, joining a union while I was there, and went to El Camino Community College and met some great mentors. And that helped change my life, led me on to go to the East Coast of Howard University, where I studied philosophy, much to the chagrin of my working class parents, who had no idea why a kid from South Central LA would study philosophy. I did so, and then returned to Los Angeles to become a fifth grade teacher. Why USC and not UCLA? UCLA was known to everybody as the basketball school. And so the first college basketball game that I attended was a USC versus Oregon game. I believe it was 1979. UCLA was still the powerhouse. If you played football, you didn't look at UCLA, you looked at USC. The era of Charles White, Pat Hayden, numerous roles, bowls, and that was important. It's interesting you asked that question. When you think about the movie Boys in the Hood, there was a scene where the young man wanted to go from high school to college. And where did he want to go to play football? USC. And if memory serves me correctly, he had on a number 42 jersey for football. And that was from a famous running back from USC. So the line was pretty clear in Los Angeles. If you wanted to play basketball, it was UCLA football. It was always USC. You arrived back home as a fifth grade teacher. Now, you've actually been back east. You've lived in Washington. To what extent did getting out of California change you? Arriving to D.C. was just mind-blowing in a number of ways. First of all, it was one of the few times I'd ever seen that many Black police officers. 
When I left Los Angeles, over 60% of the police officers were white. Many of them did not live in the community. So seeing that was important. Between the police on the campus of Howard University and the police in DC, and it was, they still had white police, Hispanics and others. It was the first time in my life where I saw a police officer and didn't immediately have a reaction of fear because my interaction with the police in DC and some of the other cities were different. Going to Howard University gave me an opportunity to meet African-American students from all walks of life. I was the first in my family to go to college. It was interesting to meet people who were fourth generation college, soon to be graduates. So there was a cultural dynamic of meeting people from the Huxables and then have me coming from Los Angeles, first generation, all in the same class, having very interesting conversations. Being in D.C. at the same time, Ronald Reagan was in his last season's president. I was there when George H.W. Bush was elected to office. And so there was a lot of political dynamics, both good and bad, taking place. I think what really moved me as well was having my chance to go to the first Congressional Black Caucus meeting in 1987, would have been September, and getting a chance to meet Shirley Chisholm and a chance to meet some of the members who were some of the founding leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus and spending time just going to congressional hearings where I could, hearing them talk about urban America and the role of education. It shaped me in terms of geography, shaped me in terms of meeting people from different parts of the world, and it shaped my ideas of policing and what it looked like, but more importantly, that I could reinvent myself multiple times through education. What year did you actually get back home? 1991. So you're there about a year, and you've got the Rodney King case and then the riots that occurred. From your perspective, both at the time, but also now looking back with a sense of depth, how would you explain that to people who know nothing about it? So 1991, prior to the verdict, prior to the riots, let's put L.A. in context. 1991 was one of the bloodiest years in the history of Los Angeles. Murders were at an all-time high. You had really tough community relations between Blacks and Mexicans, really tough conversations and relations between Blacks and Koreans. There was a Korean shop owner who had shot and killed a young girl in the community. Little was done to her in terms of criminal action. That led to a number of light protests, but nothing that we saw during the Rodney King time. There was also really harsh relations between the police and people in L.A., There were sweeps at times where six to eight hundred people a weekend were swept up by the police, stopped on the street, some either taken near or to the Coliseum for questioning or in their cars. You know, I remember taking one of my cousins on a ride. He found himself in a tough spot. He was selling drugs. And so I went to pick him up, saw him on the corner. I said, man, look, let's go out and have a conversation. We, in fact, went to a museum. We had a conversation. We talked about life, why he needed to change. We go back to my car. I put the key in, open it up, and all of a sudden, all I see are Christmas lights. About five police cars descended upon us. By the time we turned around, several of them were already out, guns pointed, saying, get to the ground. They separate us. I'm on one side. He's on another. We're going back and forth with them. When asked the police, well, why was I stopped? They said, well, someone saw you breaking into a car. I said, with my own key? And then we went back and forth. My biggest concern, I was hoping my cousin didn't have dope on him at the time. Fortunately, he changed jackets and did not. But that wasn't something that was not uncommon. Now, let me not also give everyone the idea that all police were bad. I had police who stopped me for 
a light that was out in the back and said, hey, listen, you need to get that taken care of. I had police who would come to our schools, throw footballs with us, have conversations. So there was both. But in 91, it was just really tough. And if you take a look at the music at the time, particularly coming from Los Angeles, N.W.A., their album was out. I can't say the word on your show, but people know F the police. So there were a number of social, economic, cultural dynamics taking place. And so when we saw Rodney King on camera beat, and even when a president, George H.W. Bush, said he was sick and how could he explain that to his grandchildren? A lot of us said, you know what? We've known this has happened to our family members and others. This should be a slam dunk. And when it wasn't, things changed. Do you think it was the result of the acquittal that really sort of lit the match? The acquittal lit the match for sure. It couldn't have been police brutality alone because we had a lot of cases between Rodney King finding himself beat and the acquittal. There were police reports then, but they weren't as public. So it couldn't have been that. It couldn't have been Black-white dynamics alone because that had taken place for a long time. L.A., at least from a segregation standpoint, had been racially segregated, second most to Chicago. So that was a place. But people really believe that there could have been a different response. I didn't think so, in part because when the venue was moved to Simi Valley, and Simi Valley is a community where a number of police officers live, not police officers, too, that it would be different. But for that to come through, that was just it. When the riot actually occurred, in comparison to something that's going on right now, first of all, it was a much bigger riot than we've seen in any single city this year. And it was briefly really out of control. A month before the verdict, I had a parent come to me and say, I hear you talking to my child about possible riots. You know, I'm not sure that's your responsibility. And I said, well, as your child's teacher, my responsibility is to expose him or her to multiple views of life. I said, either you grew up in the 60s or your parents did. And you're from L.A. And you saw what happened in Watts, which at that time was one of the most destructive riots in the country, 1965. And I said, if nothing happens after the verdict, it's no harm, no foul. But if, in fact, something happens, I'm pretty sure we're going to have looting and rioting. And I'm talking to your child about the history of what it's looked like in the U.S. because they're 10 years old, still socially, emotionally in important development stages, still young enough to care, but not too old to be too cute to care. And so the parent and I had a conversation about it and agreed that, okay, I can see why you're doing this. So imagine the principal walking in to the classroom and saying, the four police are off. One of the students slammed his book. Another student started to cry. And then I had night duty, which meant that I had to stay for about an hour and a half after the close of school for parents to come pick up their children. When I tell you middle-class parents all the way to parents who qualified for free and reduced price lunch. They lived in different parts of Los Angeles. They drove different cars. They could code switch differently in terms of language. The phenotypes may have been different. The education was different. But for that moment, there was one thing. We were all black and again, found ourselves treated as inferior. And just the frustration and the anger. And so parents were picking up their students. I then leave the school and people are outside honking horns. Some are standing on corners. The signs hadn't gone out yet. I even had someone walk up to me and say, do you have a gun? And if not, I'll get you. Gun sales were easy to get. 
and then it just began to evolve and evolve and then you have what we have. So saying that the verdict was what really lit it, the answer is yes, but there was a lot of kerosene under the match that had been brewing for a long time. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. there's a parallel to the sudden intensity of the reaction this year? Yeah, I think so. When I saw the initial protest in Minneapolis, I said to my wife, they're going to have a riot. And she said, why do you say that? I said, the way they're moving and the way they're organized, I've only seen that one other time. And that was in Los Angeles. Now, we've had similar responses, violent and peaceful protests in Ferguson, as well as Baltimore. We had a young man who was also shot and killed by police, caught on camera in Minneapolis. So that wasn't the first time. But very similar to the verdict, you have it on tape. There's no question about it. Black or white, Hispanic, Native American, Asian or other. When you looked at Rodney King, there was a visceral response to it for most, not all, just as it being inhumane. When you look at what happened to George Floyd, Black, White, Hispanic, Native American, multicultural, other, you had a response that was visceral because we thought it was inhumane. When the inhumaneness of the brutality rises to a level and you see the way people start moving almost like agitated bees, that's when I say, yeah, they're going to riot over this. 
It's just that I know the feeling and I think the inhumanity of the response and the cold bureaucratic way in which the city responded to it made it seem like black lives still don't matter. So in that sense, the evolution hasn't been very far in a period of 28 years. There have been changes within policing and departments in and of themselves. You've got more women who are leaders now of police department. It's much more multicultural, multiracial, more women as well in the force than you did before. There's more technology to help out with policing than ever before. We also have to realize that nearly 75% of police interaction with us isn't the result of someone pulling a gun. There are aspects of policing that have nothing to do with brutality or physically roughing people up. It has to do with the public service, the protect and serve part. There's some things have changed and some haven't. And so much of it is cultural. And so when you see the black-white dynamics, because this is very clear, we don't respond often the same way when it's black police having brutal encounters with black residents. And that's been going on a long time. In fact, there's a song from NWA where it talks about the black police beating up a black suspect to show off for the white cop. That's been going on for decades. But the white black dynamic raises just a lot of emotional flags that has a lot to do with history. But yeah, there's some changes have been made, but yeah, some dynamics are still the same. How would you rate the way President Bush tried to deal with it? He was dealing with one very large riot, but it was in one place. April 29th, Mayor Tom Bradley, first African-American mayor of the city, former police lieutenant, he contacts Pete Wilson, who's the governor, and say, listen, we've got to do something. This leads to a local and state call of emergency that then sets in place a presidential response. President George H.W. Bush signed a couple of proclamations declaring a state of emergency for the first time in many, 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 many decades, bringing up the Insurrection Act. But he also visited the city. When he visited Los Angeles, he talked to community members. He went to churches. He talked to business leaders. He got to the local ground and said, I left Washington, D.C. This is an important city for me. And what he said, and C-SPAN captured this, he says, I'm not here to talk about politics. I'm here to figure out how I can help you rebuild your lives. The number of African-American business owners, Koreans, and others who he visited with. And then he went on television and he talked about, we need to restore law and order. We need to figure out what we can do. So he took response of going and speaking. Fast forward to 2020. As far as I know, President Trump has not traveled to Minneapolis to take a look at what's taking place on the ground level, to have a conversation with business owners. I personally know of African-American entrepreneurs whose family businesses were destroyed. I know personally African-American in the city who have had places burned to the ground where they used to eat. That didn't take place. As of today, President Trump has not delivered a national message to talk about, A, the riots and protests, B, to put it in context of what this means as a society, and third, to talk about what he's going to do. President Lyndon Johnson did it when he was in office, President Obama at different points. So no response versus a response is radically different. In your article entitled Riots and Reasons in 5X, what did you mean by a battle between two competing visions? The first vision consists of private beliefs about people's role in the American social order. 
their right to fight to their right to power and their ability to pick societies, winners and losers. That's a private vision. The second vision consists of public beliefs about the role of the criminal justice system in the lives of black people in the American social order, their access to power and their ability to pick winners and losers. The American experiment is still maturing, 200 plus years older. There are private beliefs that we hold about what are people's role in the American social order? Do we have winners and losers? The answer is yes. But are the winners and losers somehow connected to a great chain of being? Well, the answer is no, but we do have economic social dynamics that seem to keep some people on top and some on the bottom. Those are private views. But in public, when you see that 12% or 13% of the population is African-American, but disproportionately represented in prison, in police cases and others, you just got to raise questions about do we have conflicting visions that are public or private? I think they are, but I at least wanted to structure it, those two questions in a way for people just to think differently about the American social order. Were you surprised in Minneapolis when the demonstrations moved into a looting and burning phase? Do you think it was possible that we could have had the demonstrations remain peaceful? Much of the demonstrations in Minneapolis were peaceful. We tend to focus on the ones that were not peaceful. As it relates to looting and fires, well, we see people do that after national football and basketball championships. We've seen that after cities win national pennants. People get excited, they want to go out and they loot and they burn. Now, we tend to focus on riots naturally because of what happened, but I'm not shocked that that happened. People are burning and looting. Now, let's be real clear. Some people were not looting for the spirit of what happened to George Floyd. They simply wanted clothes, liquor, shoes, and other items. There were people who decided to burn private businesses for a host of reasons. But the burning of the police station, I think, is really symbolic. I think what's unique about the American experience is that when you have riots and looting, it's the language that we use. When you look at labor strikes, there are labor strikes in the United States that have led to looting and burning. But we refer to those as labor strikes in part because those involved in it were mostly white or white and ethnic. You move to the United States, going back to the red summer of 1919, 1920, all the way to the present, when you've had looting and rioting in cities, sometimes over economic aspects as well, we just refer to that as a riot as if somehow it's not connected to something bigger. And by naming it a riot, it naturally means it's urban and it's black. So I think that unique uh, part about how we view skin color, reason and riot could be something that's unique to the American experience. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry, the Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Where do we go from here? I mean, what's your advice to the country? Well, my advice to parents, first of all, is to have an honest conversation with your children about what you see on television. I'm the dad of three daughters. My oldest daughter lives and works in Los Angeles. So imagine me around her age in Los Angeles, 1992, Rodney King riots. My daughter participates in a march in Los Angeles with thousands of people wearing a mask, holding a sign, and us having a conversation about what it looks like in her 20s. And so I think we've got to talk to our children about this because when they see burning and they see looting and they see fist fights, and then we tell them in school, be kind, love one another. We say the same thing in our faith traditions. They think either we as adults are lying or what they're seeing on TV is just another version of wrestling and that it's okay. So I think there's a parent component. Number two, our lawmakers have to be really clear that they cannot politicize this into a Democrat-Republican argument. We are on a really tough tightrope where we can fall into an existential abyss. And I don't say that to be philosophical. I say that to be rudely pragmatic. When you have business burned, when you have loss of jobs, when you have police and civilians alike losing their lives, when we have lost fundamental trust in a local arm of government called policing, and we're allowing people to continue to do what they do unfettered, you really are looking at aspects of anarchy that I would say we did not see in Los Angeles in 1992. It did not last as long. It also, as you mentioned, didn't spread the same way to other cities. So I would say our lawmakers see yourselves as elected officials first, not as partisans, something that George Washington warned us of about the spirit of faction and party during his farewell address. The third thing I would say is that there's got to be a faith component to this. 
if you look at the 1960s and the riots that were taking place then or the civil protests or the unrest or the uprisings, whatever term you choose to use, the faith community was pretty involved. I haven't seen a strong outreach of faith leaders. Now, I know we're in Corona and we can't meet in person, so that's a dynamic. But there's got to be a faith component to how we respond because so much of this is a human dynamic. And I think the last, frankly, is for us to reimagine what America will look like post-COVID-19 and when things get back to some order. What will we talk about to our children when they go to school? Have we prepared our teachers who also are experiencing stress how to talk to students about why this stuff really matters to them? Have we prepared our principals with the kind of support that they need to return back to school? What about our after-school programs? They play a tremendous role in supplementing what takes place before and after school. They've been closed for a long time as well. So while I see a lot of concern, I remain optimistic and hopeful because in the American experience and in what we've seen before, I go back to works of people like Howard Thurman, who was at Morehouse College. He writes a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. I think of Benjamin E. Mays. I think of civil rights leaders in the South. They lived through times, I would say, that were even more challenging than this. And they found ways to reach across the racial, economic, religious, and regional line to say, at the end of the day, this is our country. We are Americans, warts and all, this is home, and we've got to do a better job of showing our children a better example. So you think it's both a government thing, but also sort of an every American thing? I think it's a civil society thing. I don't believe that government should be the sole architect of rebuilding what we want to call our republic. It's going to take faith leaders. It's going to take public servants. It's going to take those in public service in the military is going to take what I call a all arms wraparound approach. And so for me, it's a civil society approach. That's very, very helpful. But it's also a huge challenge, don't you think? Absolutely. Within the Protestant Christian tradition, we may have over 50 denominations, one God, one Savior, multiple approaches. And we have fights internally over whether or not we should honor same-sex marriages. So we've got challenges within the church. If you look within the military, you have those in the different branches of government who believe we're doing the right thing in terms of our investment into foreign wars, some who think we've gone too far. Within our public and private school system, we have some who believe that no public money should go to private schools and then in the private sector, we have multiple independent and religious-based schools who may think differently. So we have a number of, I would say, fissures that are taking place simultaneously. But why not take this crisis, this one right here, a real one, and say, for a moment, with all the issues that we have, let's figure out what we can do to solve this issue, which is a human issue, and then let it moonwalk back to our other problems. At a personal level, not to put you on the spot, but I think it's important. How often do you find yourself being discriminated against just because of color? I'll give you a couple of real world examples. I attended a banquet in Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C. is a very cosmopolitan city, one of the great capital cities of our country. 
I'm dressed along with my wife in a tuxedo. And I happened to stop walking by a table and someone poked me and said, I would like you to get me some wine. And I said, I'm not the waiter. And she said, well, you didn't have a name tag. And I said, the waiters don't have a name tag. In fact, no one in here has a name tag. And the embarrassment at that table was beyond belief. That's one example. Number two in Washington, D.C., and this has happened more than once recently. I parked my car in an underground parking spot. Like everyone else, I'll give the attendant my key. I've had people walk up to me and give me their keys, expecting me to go get their car because they think that I'm the attendant. And I had on a suit. The last example is one that even my father, who was born in 1913, experienced, which shows that this thing is generational. When I go to a hotel, I have to watch where in the hotel I stand. Because if I stand too close to the front desk, I'm automatically the bellhop, even though I don't have on a cap or I don't have on a uniform. And if I stand in the middle, happen to be by myself, people will walk up and ask me where the room is located because they believe I'm the concierge. And nothing wrong with those jobs. A number of African-American men have been able to raise those families on their job. But the idea that when you see black, you don't see professional, that when you see black, you see worker, not employer or entrepreneur, or the fact that when you see black and male, you still see the debate that Du Bois and Booker T. Washington was having, hand versus heart. And I have a master's degree from Harvard. My wife is a graduate of Harvard. Our daughter is a graduate of Howard University. I've got what people would say are the badges of honor to show that I'm middle class, but I'm always very clear that how I'm seen is one thing, but here's the takeaway, Mr. Speaker. It's not what you call me, it's what I call myself. And one of the things I learned at Howard University is that before all of this took place, I was who I was. And so I put it in perspective. Don't always like it, don't always say it feels good, but I'm not gonna let that eat away at my soul because I know who I am and the people who think that way You've got some growing up to do. Do you feel you have to be extra cautious in dealing with the police? The answer is yes, and I say that from experience, but I can't say it from a statistical standpoint because I've never been white and have never had a chance to interact with police other than being black. But what I can say just from interactions with my friends, professional or otherwise, we have to be. In fact, in high school, we were stopped by the police. I would take the keys out of my car. I'd roll down my window. And I would not put my hand out the window because when you see a hand coming out, you don't know what's in my hand or an arm extending. I would throw the keys on the ground. That was at least a signal that I'm not going to drive away. And then me and my friends would put our hands uh, me on the steering wheel and they would put their hands high enough where you could look through the back window. And so people would not know that you had a gun. I'm not sure how many of my white high school classmates had to do that or how many of my white professional friends would do that now. Part of what we have to come to grips with that I don't have any answer for is that that level of discrimination is still real and still amazingly personal. I think the average white person has no notion that in 2020, there's still a level of all day, every day, minor and major discrimination that does have an alienating effect. Would you say, is that an accurate statement? It is. This has been very helpful. I'm very proud to know you as a friend, and I really think you're providing real leadership. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker, for this opportunity to have a dialogue with you. Thank you to my guest, Gerard Robinson. You can read more about race in America towards a new generation of solutions on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendlet. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, how did the prosecution of Michael Flynn begin? I'm joined by Lee Smith to discuss the Flynn case. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.